Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And my guest is David Bennett, who joins us via Skype all the way from Oxford, England. Hello. Yeah, well, Hello. good good day to you. Um, I, I just want to uh, begin by letting you tell people what you do there in Oxford, and then we'll, we have a fascinating story to walk through. Definitely. So, yeah, I, I work here doing adjunct speaking at the Zacharias Trust, which is part of Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. Um, so I do everything from kind of communications work here, but also do, do speaking engagements with the, the ministry on topics of sexuality. Um, yeah, so that's kind of where, where I come from. I studied here in Oxford um, two years ago, and yeah, so it's great to be with you, Daryl, today. Well, it's a real pleasure. Well, let's let's uh, start from uh, from the very beginning. How does a uh, a nice guy like you end up in a ministry with Ravi Zacharias? Tell us your starting point. I mean, did you train for this all your life? I, to be honest, it it was completely something that was unpredicted for me. I mean, if you asked me seven years ago whether I'd be working for an international Christian ministry, I would have scoffed and laughed. Um, because, you know, I come from a background very much in you know, the, the gay rights movement. Mm-hmm. When I was younger, I, I came out when I was 14 years of age. I was a very strong kind of advocate for, for gay um, and lesbian rights. <laughs> so that was quite an, was like a big journey for me coming out. And it meant that I was quite, you know, anti the church and anti uh you know, what I thought was a very oppressive religion called Christianity. Now, where did that, you grow up? I grew up in Sydney, Australia. Oh, so you're Australian and Aussie, yeah. huh? Yeah, yeah. You know, us Australians are just always kind of traveling around the place and working overseas and things like that. So, you know, and that, it was a natural fit, really, to be part of the ministry here. And, yeah, it's it's growing up in Australia is really a context where, you know, I was very much, you know, growing up in Sydney, which has the second largest gay and lesbian population in the world, and grew up in a Christian school, which was more on the conservative end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. So already in, in in the atmosphere for me was was Christianity very strongly, but also my internal struggle with my own sexuality. And so I think God brought me to Oxford in, in kind of the most incredible way. And I wasn't a Christian at that time, so... It was only until I was about 19 that God brought me to Oxford to study here at the Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics and to work with Ben Arthur, work with Ravi through that kind of connection of studying here. So you came to Oxford to study what? Theology. Oh, you came so, to study theology. So you can't, you had, your experience of coming to the Lord predated your trip to Oxford? Yes. Okay. So I was a complete atheist agnostic up until about the age of 19. Okay, so uh, why don't you tell us how you came to the Lord? Sure, yeah, absolutely. So I came to the Lord in a, a very in a very radical way. You know, the Lord really, His grace just crashed in on my life and kind of seized me out of nowhere. Um, so I was actually, when I was 19 years of age, I was in a love triangle with one of my, my best friends 
and his boyfriend, his boyfriend fell in love with me. So this was the start of a kind of collapse of that friendship, hmm. a collapse of that situation. And I basically had the revelation that I was sinful, that somehow I needed salvation, but I wouldn't have put it in those terms then. And then about three months after that, I found myself in a pub in central Sydney, in the gay quarter of Sydney. And um, I was sitting in the pub and I, I met this girl there who opened up a conversation about, about God and Jesus. And I had a, a very strong and virulently and like negative reaction to her bringing that up. But then she through the conversation ended up offering prayer to me. And I said, yes, you can pray for me, but I don't think anything's going to happen. It was at this point that she actually laid hands on me and prayed for me. And I actually had the most incredible encounter with Jesus Christ and mm. just felt this, what I describe as kind of like an oil on the top of my head, a tingling sensation. I was like, just, it came all the way over and down. And I heard a voice say to me, do you want me? Times. In, and then I said, yes. And then I saw a veil over my heart pinprick of light and the veil it just felt like this breath entered me now I had no comprehension of what was happening to me I didn't know the bible all I knew were you know the text in the bible so this is all happening in a pub all happening in a pub yeah okay just you know completely really for me out of the blue but really I know that my family were praying for me over 11 year periods that actually the girl at the pub went to my family's church and was part of the same church movement and that God really had set up this kind of conspiracy <laughs> to mm. save me, you know. Um, and you, I think has crafted an incredible story from that point of salvation. Now, I heard a version of your testimony that you gave at, at Trafalgar Square, this kind of very private corner of London. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, I think I remember hearing correctly that your mother had come to the Lord just before Yes. Is this also in Australia? It's also in Australia. The three years before my mother became a Christian through through the same Christian family that was praying for me. And it was at this point that um, actually I was quite angry at my mother for becoming a Christian because I said, you have to choose between the God that hates me and me. You know, you're choosing a God that, as far as I'm concerned, is an illusion over your truth that your son that is right in front of you and who he says, you know, categorically is sinful and can't be part of his kingdom. So how can you choose God over me, Mum? That makes no sense. Hmm. And so I was just so angry at her really and it and it actually divided us and it was ho- a really horrible thing to go through actually, to to feel that division with your mother or your someone close to you. And and so uh, and, and how long was the separation between the time she became a Christian and, and you had this experience in the pub? So this was three years. Three um, years, okay. And it was actually three months before this point that I was in the pub that I was having a debate with my uncle over the, the Christmas family lunch table. And I said to him, you know, you Christians think you have the absolute truth. There is no absolute truth. I've studied postmodern philosophy. I know there isn't one. You can't produce one with language. Like, it's not possible, this kind of thing. And he came back to me and he said, well, actually, the truth is a person. The truth, 
you know, you should say there's no absolute truth. That is an absolute truth. And he kind of did a bit of apologetics with me, actually. And I was quite, like, disarmed by what he was saying and quite angry and kind of stormed out of the room. And I was at this point that he leans over to my aunt, um, the same aunt that brought my mother to Christ, and said, David will be saved in three months. Time. I see the Holy Spirit over him. And my aunt said, did you just see that reaction? He is not going to be saved. <laughs> wow. So, you know, it's just amazing, amazing. And so it's exactly two months after my uncle said that, that I was saved in the pub. Okay, so you got saved in the pub. What happens next? I mean, you obviously got completely relocated. So what? What happened? How did you? How did? Yeah. How did you get nurture after this experience? So the girl that I met in that pub, uh, she said, "Why didn't you come to the film competition that she was part of?" And I saw her film, and at the film competition, ran down actually before when when I saw her film on the screen, I looked up at a star in the sky and I said. All right, God, if you're real, I need a, I need a rational sign that you exist. I need something, like, direct, because I've got to give up a lot if I'm going to follow you. And so, so at that point, that I ran down to the red carpet with Genevieve. She was there, and she turned around to me and said, David, I just feel like God has God's been begging me to tell you all night that he exists, that he's real. And it was just this direct answer to my prayer. So she invited me to the church um, on that Sunday after the competition, and it was there that really I encounter, like, encountered God in a very deep way. And it was through the church, really, that I both was growing deeply in Christ, but also struggling culturally to belong, struggling to understand this kind of alien culture that I'd never been part of before, and it didn't make a lot of sense to me, hmm. um, and the experiences that I had outside of it, the church. So it was quite a struggle for me, really, especially the first three years of coming to Christ, to reconcile my sexuality and my faith. Okay, so this is a three-year journey. How, what's the distance of time between your experience in the pub and the time you get to Oxford? Yeah, so Oxford happened around five years after I came to Christ. Okay. So there were a lot of experiences along the way. Um, I think when I was three years into my walk with Christ, I moved to Strasbourg, France, and it was in France that I really had a reckoning over the issue of homosexuality. Hmm. And it kind of came to a fore where I think, God, you've created me to need intimacy, to need love. I need an answer on this sexuality issue. And to which he replied, I'm sending you a birthday present. So in the mail, I got one book on my birthday. It was the book Washed and Waiting by Wesley Hill. Oh, yeah, sure. And I read that, and I just felt God just speaking to me through his story and and through, through what he was saying in the book. And that's when I made a reckoning to really follow Christ and to give, to give up my sexuality. And I often say to people, you know, Christ, Jesus Christ bought us on the cross. He bought our body. He bought the, the whole being, all of us, everything, our sexuality. And so if we're not willing to give up one aspect of our being for God, have we really, you know, have we really entered into this relationship with Jesus? We're not willing to give everything up for him. And I think I had to come to that in my own way through, a, you know, a long journey over those three years. So that's just to give you a little snapshot. And then coming to Oxford was um, an incredible story, really. I was working in Sydney, Australia, in a communications job there. 
And I just said, Lord, I was offered a five-year contract. And I said to the Lord, is this really what you want me to be doing? And he said to me, no, I have something else for you. And so I obeyed that. I was unemployed for three weeks and received a call from the UK from a businesswoman who actually said, you need to do this course in Christian apologetics that's being offered probably that Christ international ministry and also at the university studying theology. And so I applied, got in, and God provided miraculously some scholarship funds to get me here as well. So it's been an amazing journey, and God has just been so faithful. And I, I really think it comes down to my relationship with Jesus, to be honest. I think even with all the, the cultural difficulties and all the internal struggle, it's that grace from Jesus that has kept me on the path and made it possible to live the life I, I live now. So, yeah. Well, that's a that's a, a wonderful story, and I appreciate you telling it and telling it so crisply. Um, uh, let I, I've got kind of two angles I want to go at this from. One is, um, what advice would you give to someone who who comes out of the background you came out of? And then secondly, what advice would you give to people who attempt to minister to people out of that background, and particularly the, mis- the, the, the mistakes and sensitivities to have, the uh, mistakes to avoid and the sensitivities to have as you, as you do that? So let's, let's try and segment this into those okay. three parts. Um, yeah. And so first, let's talk about um, – what advice you would give to someone who was kind of where you were, uh, and and obviously one of the elements is their view of God and the church, and and the way they come into that, and and, and perhaps um, the thought about how to how to be open to what it is that who it is that God is, and what he what he does for people. Yeah, thank you, Daryl. Yeah, I think. My advice to anyone who is same-sex attracted or identifies as gay or lesbian, I think it's really that you're no different to anyone else, that, you know, there is no discrimination in the kingdom of God, and Jesus doesn't see you as your sexuality, even if the world does. Jesus doesn't, and he sees you as a unique person that he's made. And I think you have to start with that really strong understanding that you're actually made in the image of God, and that... God sees you, you know, as a whole person. So I would start there, and I think it took me a while to really understand that by calling myself gay or making, building my life on my homosexuality as an identity, I was actually reducing myself down to a very small part of who I was. Hmm. And I think actually in coming to know, you know, one of the pieces of advice I often give people is just to give God some time to communicate with you to be patient, to let him into your heart, and let him into your mind, and let him show you. You know, one of the things that I found really hard was I'd read the Bible, but it made no sense to me. It just felt legalistic. And it wasn't until I said to God, the Holy Spirit, could you just, could you reveal to me why this is in your word? Why, you know, you have this issue with homosexuality, and actually really pursued Jesus in relationship and said, Jesus, why? can't I be with a guy and, and, and have those desires fulfilled? So I think that's one piece of advice I'd give, is just to be theologically patient with God and to know that God can provide for your needs, for intimacy and friendship and love, that love isn't just an erotic desire. Love is much greater than that. 
and to reduce laughter and erotic desire is also a, a big issue. So to really see your need for love, I think is really important and that only God can truly fulfill that and allowing him to reorder what you value, allowing him to change you from the inside out. I really think that's the biggest piece of advice I give, you know, and I've been saying to people practically, just give God a year, give God a year to really get, you know, if you've come to Christ and you've met him and you're coming from kind of a gay rights background, give God time to reveal why he says what he does in his words. Um, and he, you know, in every, at every instance, really communicated with me and helped me through that, through people, but also through the Holy Spirit and through the community of the church. Now, you said something I think is pretty profound that I want to probe a little bit, and that is the idea that the 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 picture of your identity tied to your sexuality is actually reduction of who you are. It's not the whole of who you are, and and. Really, my sense has been in these conversations that the issue of identity in these sexuality discussions becomes so big that it almost is like, I'll use the image, it's almost like a wall that gets in the way between you and God and really you and yourself um, in many ways. Um, So um, elaborate on that a little bit because I think this identity thing is is a huge um, huge conversation point when you're talking about this topic. Yeah, I think that any identity that isn't really about being in Christ, it essentially can become a false idol or a god, mm-hmm. a little g-god, and I think <laughs> that's why it's so important that you, we as Christians need to be willing to give up any of those idols, any of those identities, and to give them to Christ and to let him give it back to us. So whether that's our sexuality, whether it's our desire to be married, whether it's our desire to do ministry, whether it's money, anything, any of those desires that Jesus talks about that are coming out of the heart, you know, and they often get twisted, is it's, it's about giving your heart, giving your desires over to him and letting him change you. And I think... You know, I haven't, Jesus hasn't changed my sexuality. I I don't believe in that kind of, but what he has done is he's changed the way that I see myself and I see myself in relation to him. And I think that's a really profound transformation that Jesus does through his grace, that ultimately it's about becoming a new creature, a new being, you know? And so I think you have to give up, be willing to give up that identity. And you look at Abraham, he gave up Isaac. You know, he gave up the most precious thing to him. It's like that with your, it, for us today with our sexuality. It's like our Isaac, you know, are we willing to give that up to God? Hmm. And God will always come through. He will always bring the ram. He'll always bring something else in its place that will fulfill us deeply and satisfy us. So we really don't lose anything in this. It's not like God is cruel and he's trying to kind of oppress us. He's trying to bring us into that narrow path that Jesus talked about. Um, and so there's a reconfiguration that shows that who I am as a person is bigger than the way I previously thought about it? Exactly, yes. Yeah. yeah. Precisely. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, there's, um, uh, this, is a, this is a difficult conversation for a lot of people in terms of people who say, I'm gay, my, my, God doesn't change my, my sexual desires, but he has changed the way I view them. I think that's another profound observation. Um, 
help people with that, particularly people who who haven't who aren't same sex attracted and who just don't get it. Um, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. Great. Uh, elaborate on that a little bit. One of the things I often say to Christians is, you know, when you say to someone homosexuality is a sin, if you say that to a same sex attracted or gay or lesbian person, what you're essentially saying is the two greatest forms of transcendence in our society are a relationship with God and romantic love. They're the two things that we live for. And now we've gotten kind of rid of God and now we just have romantic love. So if you don't have romantic love, then you have no transcendence. So when you're saying to a gay person, homosexuality is a sin, what you are saying is you can't have access to any of that transcendence. You can't have access to what makes life worth living. So how the, then the gay or lesbian person reacts to that is, you've just deleted me. You've just completely removed me. I can't live a life that's meaningful. Like, why, do I, why, why should I even exist then? You know, what's my purpose? Why, why am I here then? It, it, and it's, it's that kind of virulent reaction a lot of gay and lesbian people have to the church because the church has said, well, it's a sin, well, it's a sin, well, it's a sin. With it. It's a sin without actually pointing to a positive vision of what it means to worship God and love God and live for Him and be willing to give up anything. You, I, hope, I hope that helps, but that's what, often what I say, is we need to be careful when we, we say these things, that we're really communicating, first, the love of God for people, and second of all, you know, God's standards and God's, God, God's kind of view of sexuality. So is the conversation uh, to go in a direction that in a in effect, offers something more to the person who is, who who you're interacting with. I mean, uh, I imagine there are lots of ways it could go, but but basically, you're saying you know there's more to life than the life that you're living right now. I think that's precisely it. I think that what Jesus offers us is so much more than a reduction. It's so much more than you and your sexuality. It's about being a whole human being mm-hmm. and being restored by Him. So yeah, I, that's precisely it that there is this greater vision of living a human life than just marriage or romantic love okay so it puts us in a larger world with a larger purpose to life in which this becomes a piece but it's it's not the whole we're we're coming up to the end of the first segment here and so i'm going to summarize a little bit uh because you've taken us through a nice introduction to one how someone uh how god can grab hold of someone literally out of the blue and then secondly um how to think about our identity in relationship to the conversations that we might have and how we might offer an invitation that opens up a bigger world and a different kind of world to someone who oftentimes really is searching in life. Exactly. And, you know, jumping off the back of that, I think what we've seen in in our society is the aggrandizement or the, you know, we've made romantic love so absolute. You know, I think about popular culture today and every single song you listen to, every single film you watch, there always has to be a love and romance scene. Now, that doesn't mean that romantic love is bad, but when it's made ultimate, when it's made like the most important thing for your flourishing as a human being, then that's where it becomes dangerous because it's kind of taking the place of God. And in my own personal experience as a same-sex attracted person, Becoming a Christian, following Jesus, has actually really set me free from making that romantic love 
the thing that completes me, the thing that makes me whole, because it never did. But I kept trying to make it my God. And actually that damages you. I think that's the worst thing about uh, kind of making something ultimate over God is it doesn't fulfill you in the way that you're needing to be fulfilled. And so I think jumping off the back of that, I think we need to see a shift in the culture and, and a reformation really in the church about what is ultimate to us. Like in our everyday nitty gritty lives, what are we really making important? Is it I need to be married to be complete or I need to have a romantic relationship or is it I need to worship the Lord Jesus and give him everything? And I think that's a very deep personal thing, but also something we need to be pointing to more in the church and showing culture that actually living as a disciple of Jesus and giving everything up for him is actually where you find freedom and satisfaction. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. And I like to do this when I'm teaching in Romans 1. You come to the end of Romans 1 and Paul goes through a long list of things that uh, different people do that show their separation from God. And sexuality is only one very small piece of that very long list. And at the end of that passage, when he's issuing his rebuke, he says, you know, people who do these things uh, are, 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 the, are the ones who are separated from God. And the point is, we're not just singling out one sin here. We've got a whole list of things, including things like gossiping, uh, being disobedient to parents, that kind of thing, which Paul says disqualifies one or separates us from God. So let's just start there. Uh, I, I think that sometimes people put sexuality in kind of a special category of sin. And uh, I suspect that one of the ways into the conversation is to recognize that, in, that, that although it gets a lot of attention, it's, it's one of many, if I can say it that way, in yeah. terms of sin. Daryl, I think that that's a really good distinction. I think one of the things that's always great is coming back to the fact that we're all in the same boat regardless of who we are and what we experience with the Lord, that He doesn't discriminate at all that he loves every individual, he loves every person that he's made, and that he's so willing to have a relationship with us, and he's so willing to show us the way back to him, you know? And I think it's really, as you were saying previously in the podcast, it's us, we put up these walls to him, and it's, it's our job really like to, to let be willing to let them come down. And so just coming back to what you were talking about, I think... I agree with what you're saying, but I also think there's a counter. There's two sides to that coin of what you're bringing up. I really think that on one level, it's it's completely like all the other sins, you know. But then in a, in another sense, 
it's very different um, to all the other sins. And so when we talk about it, we have to be really careful because it touches a deep vein of, of who we are as human beings. I Back think, to this transcendence idea that you were talking earlier, that there's a certain kind of thing that's going on with sexuality that's not like other kinds of, of ways we relate. Exactly. And, and in a sense, it is like every other sin. It's about putting something else above God. I mean, when you're talking about Romans, it's about really Paul is talking about worship there. What do you see as the most worthy life for you to give yourself to? And I think... Um, but, but but when we come to this sexuality question in our culture, we have just been told so much that it's that romantic love makes us complete, as I was saying before, and that that and I do believe on some level that comes from a Christian root that love is the ultimate. But it's how we've defined this love, and I think what's happened is as as human beings, as people made in, in the image of God. We've subtly changed the definition of love from the love that Jesus gave us on the cross to this romantic love, which isn't bad necessarily, but it just needs to be brought under the love of Jesus Christ and, mm-hmm. you know, redefined by living with him. And I think that's, that's a thing. Coming back again to what you were saying, I think that sexuality is different in the sense that it comes back to that image-bearing aspect, you know, the Lord made them male and female, and he brought, brought them together as one flesh, you know, and so there's there's that giving up a very, very deep thing that I think is a special sacrifice that, you know, I've walked through and many other same-sex attracted Christians have walked through. And I think that, you know, there's many other sacrifices that lots of people make for the gospel, but whenever you give something up to the Lord, He always will, you know, give it back to you in the way that truly satisfies you. So you don't really lose out ultimately. You don't miss out on the intimacy that you were created for. The Lord can fill that. And He did that with Jesus. He did that with Paul, you know, who were both people who were completely, you know, you know, Jesus was whole and complete. He had complete shalom, complete peace. There was nothing in him. He didn't lack anything, and he was celibate. So I think we can see there that, that it's actually cruel to say to someone you need romantic love to be complete. So yeah. I, I take it that uh, in the background here is kind of the uh, approach that, that you know Wesley Hill has written about, which is that your identity in Christ – um, it is so profound that it ends up um, defining how you view sexuality on the one hand, and uh, and and the Christian who recognizes what Scripture says about sexuality, who has same-sex attraction, their option, uh, or at least an option, is to uh, basically make the decision to be to be celibate. Is that what you're alluding to here? Yeah, I mean, I think I came to a point in my journey, and I can really only point to my my story with the Lord, where I really felt He was saying, "I'm not, I'm, I'm not calling you to be in a same-sex relationship, but that I'm calling you to to remain single and remain celibate until further advice." Mm-hmm. And I've never had any other advice 
the other any other way and I see that you know the word of God as we discussed saying that it's it's not okay but also inexperienced it's proved itself over seven years of walking intimately with Jesus so I think really that is a difficult thing for a lot of same-sex attracted people it, it is really hard and I think it's a unique struggle and a unique call that Jesus has on our lives. But I just wanted to bring up a, a passage of scripture that I think counteracts that in, in some sense as well. And it says, it's in Isaiah 56, and it says, For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant. To them I will give in my house and in within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. So I see here in like the word of God, God is wanting to give a name that is even better than having a romantic relationship to people like myself. That there is some blessing that the Lord has for us that counterbalances what we lose. We get a name that's better in some sense. And so I want to focus on that as well, that actually I have an intimacy. And actually a colleague here at RZAM recently said to me, she said, David, I envy the intimacy you have with Christ. I'm a married woman. I have a great relationship. But you just have this joy that is so deep in you. And you know, you've walked this unique path, and without what you've gone through, you wouldn't have that closeness to Christ. So for me, the greatest thing you can have is the knowledge of Jesus Christ. For me, it's worth selling everything for <laughs> to hmm. get that. Hmm. And if it means being celibate, great. You know, and I, I don't eliminate the option of also being with a woman. If the Lord, by His grace, somehow, you know, gave me that attraction, then I'd be open to that. But it would have to be real, and it would have to be from Him. And it's not something that you can just change. It's something that I think has to be given by grace. And it's a deeply personal thing between you and Christ. Now, it strikes me that uh, what this asks of the Christian community is uh, an awareness and a sensitivity and a, and a need to uh, to be supportive in many ways. Um, let's talk about that some, because I think that's that's another um, difficult part of this conversation. People don't realize what it means. I think the church struggles with people, generally speaking, at least in the West, with people who, who choose to be single or are single for a significant period of time. But you add this on top of it, and my goodness, uh, look at what you're looking at. So. Um, yeah. So how how can the church be supportive? Daryl, I think you put your finger on something that's really important in this discussion. I think that the church needs to shift the way that it sees um, our lived-out lives. And I often think, you know, I want to do more ministry on this topic. I want to talk about it, but I also want to embody the response. And I think we've lost a lot in the history of the Christian church relating to living in communities together and living out what I call kind of like a semi-monastic existence where prayer and worship and intimacy with Jesus is kind of put on a a bit of a higher, you know, on a pedestal a little bit more. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> and made it more of a priority. Yeah, a priority is better, yeah. yeah. And so I think that for me, I'm really interested actually in the moment Oxford, I want to start a community here of disciples that live and that 
are, are kind of, yeah, modeling that slightly monastic way of living or, you know, a missional community where that, that, that can happen. But I have to say it's been, it's been a huge struggle for me, especially in certain churches where marriage is put on a pedestal in an unhealthy way and where I just don't feel like I can access that. And often there's suspicion, oh, you know, do we want to put David in ministry or how does it, but yes, we do, no, we don't. Or, you know, how to, all of those questions, I think we really need to, we really need to have a deeper conversation. And, and one that's public and secure, um, and also one that's private and maybe more profound. So, yeah, I think there's, there's space to reform the church on sexuality, um, and I think it's an exciting reformation, actually, for our generation as Christians to get involved with. And, um, yeah, the Lord is working, you know, as well on this issue. So one way in which the church can sometimes be insensitive without being aware of it, perhaps, is by so elevating the family and treating the family as if it is such the norm that people who are single, no matter, whether, no, no matter how they're single, feel excluded in the process. I think it's a very subtle thing. It's kind of, what do you, does the church, does church leadership share its time? Who does the church share its time with? Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of celibate, same-sex attractive people often feel on the fringe, not in that central uh, fellowship. I think we need to change that. Uh, and then out of that relationship and, and you know, I mean, if I can just put in a word for Ravi Zacharias, he's an incredible man of God. And as I've gotten to know him more, he's taken a real interest in in loving me and listening to me and hearing my story. And I mean, I think he could be a great example as well for how the church could approach this and ministry leaders could approach this. But and also just generally, the ministry here has really just been incredible. But it's hard. I mean, there's just this cultural sense that people don't understand, they don't get it, and I think that really is only going to change when voices like mine and Wesley Hill and other people start to really be valued by the church, which I think is happening. So I'm, I'm excited. I'm optimistic to see how we as a church adapt to this issue. Yeah. But practically speaking, what that means is is doing things in community that uh, is, if I can say it this way, consciously inclusive of people who aren't a part of a family unit. Uh, in, in the traditional sense of that term, and uh, and make sure that people are included in in the way people engage, in the way they they minister, in the way they even talk uh, about things in life. I think you're right, and it's this idea of the family of God versus the nuclear family, and I think sometimes. I think the political landscape of like the post-industrial world kind of elevates the family to such a high position, the nuclear family, that it kind of knocks out the Christian idea of the family of God, which involves widows, it involves celibate people, it involves fathers that have lost their wives. It just, it's so varied, it's so diverse, and we need to make sure we guard that diversity and that we don't try to make it uniform and just you know, make it about the nuclear family, two kids, and a house. You know, it really needs to be the Christian vision and not another one, you know, taking taking its place. Okay, so we've talked about kind of uh, what this is for the person who has same-sex attraction. We've talked about how the church can relate 
to people who have come into the church out of that background and have embraced Christ and some of the hurdles that, that need to be thought about there. Let's kind of rewind back yeah. and ask the question, um, you're, you're meeting someone who comes out of a same-sex background and, you're, and, and you yourself feel like, I have no compass for this. I have no places to know where to start and, and have a conversation and, and how to approach this and what to be aware of and what sensitivities to have. I know that's a wide open question, but what, uh, what, what advice would you give to someone who's coming in to having these kinds of conversations kind of for the first time and kind of feels lost as to know how to proceed? I think there's two things. One is that anything homosexuality is in any way an evangelistic issue. I think that if, if I can qualify that, what I mean is that any person can receive Jesus Christ. And I think our first point of call is not to worry about someone's sexuality or, I mean, we want to answer that question, but before we do, really talk about Jesus first. Talk about God's grace. Talk the about image of God is more important than a person's sexuality. Yeah, and talking about how we're not under the law anymore. And I didn't know any of that. All I knew is that homosexuality was sin. I didn't know about grace and the law and all of these things. And I think trying to explain and just invite people into a relationship with Jesus first before we have that conversation and giving them space and time to process what is a very deep and difficult issue for them. And like my aunt said to me, and this really helps me, she said, David, no matter what happens, I will accept you. She said, I don't know what it's like to be homosexual. It's easy for me to read those verses in the Bible because I'm not homosexual, but you know, you are and you struggle with that and that is, you know, really difficult. And so I don't want to hold anything over you. I just want you to know Jesus and to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to for him to teach you because I can't teach you. No man can teach you, you know. And so I think it's allowing people to explore God and explore their relationship with Jesus first. And then when you come to them with like difficult questions, being able to walk them through. Um, and, you know, you don't have to have all the answers. I think that's the thing is, you know, if you're not same-sex attracted, you're not going to understand the issue as intimately. But I think that just your presence and just being there and not running away. And, you know, the girl in the pub that prayed for me, she wasn't, when I said, you know, I'm homosexual and I don't want prayer, she said to me, I don't really think that matters. Have you experienced the love of God? So she was relating to you as a person. The sexuality was just kind of this side thing over here that really didn't enter into the equation of how she was relating to you because she was going to relate to you as a person no matter what was the issue was on the side. That's right, but she also at the same time could tell that that was dif difficult for me and didn't sublimate it. She was just saying, here's an even more important thing. Have you actually heard about the love? Have you actually experienced the love of God? Do you really know what it means to be a Christian and to know the love of Jesus? So I think she put, it's the priority in which we put things. I think sometimes we go to the morality first and the law first without having you know, told people about... Yeah, but about connected relationally. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, uh, the, the, I, I can't tell you how important I think that is. That that um, that the idea of trying to relate to someone, and 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 just sitting in some cases, just listening as a person, 
and connecting with them is a very, very important starting point. I, I often talk about allowing person to give you, allowing the person that you're having a conversation with to give you a kind of spiritual GPS. Yeah. Uh, you know, see where they are, what motivates them spiritually, what drives their life. Let them talk for a while about themselves, and in that process, you get to know about them. And in the midst of that, you're in a much better position than to interact with them on the other end. Exactly. And I think trusting God and trusting Jesus, that God knows about this issue, that God knows about that person and knows every intimate detail of their life, and just being confident in Him that He can also minister to them ultimately, and that you're there to serve and to love and to share an invitation, to share the best invitation anyone will ever receive in their, their life. You know, and so I think... And just to have that natural joy that my friend in the pub had, that natural love, that authenticity, is so vital. So I think Christians, if we can just get rid of any of the masks we have, or any of the prejudices we have, I think that really paves the way for people to encounter Jesus, whatever background, but particularly from the gay and lesbian community. Now, you said there were two things. One, obviously, is to not make the homosexuality thing a, a wall that gets in the way of relating to them as a person. What's the second thing that you had in mind that you said you would want us to uh, to reflect on as we raise the question of how to interact? Uh, the second thing was that God said to me, you know, the closer you get to me, the more your desires become my, my desires, and my desires your desires. So that we, I think people need to first have a heart change before they can understand fully what what God is calling them to. So I think letting that process actually happen of the true born again experience, allowing people to actually receive from Jesus um, their new heart, their new desires, and then from that, they, over time, as they struggle through it, as they live, as they enjoy their life in Christ, it, it works itself out. It works itself out, and so I think it's, 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 it requires patience and loving kindness, and it requires um, us really to be present and to really back up the words that we say. Yeah, I'm hearing I'm hearing the word patience a lot, and and, and really giving giving time. That and what I'm also hearing from you from your story and reflecting on it is. There was at one point, there was this radical change that was like almost a 180 degree turn, but working that out actually took a lot of time on the other end. That it wasn't just an, everything just dropped into place. I think that's right, and I think that it, it took a lot of, if I didn't have the support from my family and I didn't have the support from certain people in the church that were faithful, it would have been really hard. And, you know, that's why the grace of God is so pivotal. So I think the more we just need to really come alongside anyone that comes to Christ and help them and be there for them and bear their burdens. Um, and and I think that's such an important part of this. So thank you, Darren, for your time. I really appreciate uh, this conversation. And I'm really looking forward to future 
future time together to talk about this. Well, I agree, David. I really appreciate your taking the time to be this kind of walking you through what the experience is like and helping us get a glimpse of the transformation that Christ can really bring into uh, in, into life. I mean, yours is just a sample in one area, but it's an area that gets a lot of attention and where a lot of people feel very awkward in many ways on both sides of the conversation. And being able to help us sort that out has really been a gift. So I really appreciate your willingness to take the time to do that with us. We appreciate your being with us in the table where we discuss issues of God and culture, and we look forward to you coming and seeing us again soon. Thank you so much, Tara. It's been my pleasure. God bless you. God bless. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.